Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley, one of the associate editors, and I'm going to be taking you through the key papers in this month's edition of the Emergency Medicine Journal, June 2017. So this month, primary survey has been done by Mary Darwood. She's one of our associate editors who's based in London, and she's picked out a number of papers, actually, which are quite interesting, despite what you think about emergency medicine and despite where you may work in the world. So there's a couple of editors' choice this month, which I think are very interesting, partly because, and okay, there's a conflict of interest here. I am one of the authors on one of the papers, written by Rick Bodie, one of my colleagues up in Manchester, Professor Rick Bodie, on the characteristics of the TMAX score uh, as a chest pain risk stratification score in the ED. And this is something we've been working on for many years, and it's a way that we can predict with some certainty the risk of a patient coming up to the emergency department actually calculate what their ACS risk score is. And that's a really interesting and novel idea that Rick's put together. And it's allowed us to have almost bespoke levels of risk attached to our patients. Really interesting concept, really interesting to use in practice because clinicians don't traditionally have that level of detail about their patients. And this is a really nice study done by Rick. Okay, I admit I'm slightly biased about this one, but it is a nice one that shows that TMAX can rule out ACS in about 40% of patients while ruling in 5% of them at the highest risk very early on in their clinical presentation. And there's some other work around the world from other people showing that we are moving, I think, to a stage where early biomarkers and early risk stratification scores can genuinely deliver on that early dischargeability of patients. So some really interesting stuff there. And alongside that is some work which we've got this month on how rock curves work. Now, if you've done any exams recently, you'll know that rock curves can come up in things like the Fellowship of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine exams. And they're quite difficult to understand at first, but actually there's a, there's a lot of logic behind them. And once you get used to them, they're actually a very, very powerful way of understanding diagnostics. So Hugh Zhu Hu, a clinical research fellow at the University of Sheffield, has put together a really nice and interesting and very, very helpful paper on the use of rock curves. It explains the fundamentals of it, and we've linked it to the paper by Ricks. And I think we're going to try and see a few more of these in the EMJ over the next few months and years, because it's it's important to us that we have a readership who is informed and able to interpret the data well. That's part of critical appraisal, and it's ultimately part of evidence-based medicine. So we all need to know about this, and I'm sure you'll find those interesting. Mary's also picked out some other papers which I think are worthy of note and there's one around the demand for mental health care in the emergency department and that's continuing to rise and certainly that's something we see in Manchester and sadly this rise is increasingly including children and the provision of adolescent and mental health service or CAMS as we talk them in most EDs uh, it, it falls pretty short of what's needed really. And so we, this month we have a systematic review by Newton and colleagues from Canada on children's mental health service and crises in the ED. And it's pretty interesting reading, really. The previous reviews back in 2010 by the same set of authors provided some evidence to support the use of specialised care models to reduce hospitalisation, to look at things like return ED visits and length of ED stay. And this is an update, really. So in this current study, they report an increase in research over the past few years, but... Most of the evidence is limited by weak methodology. And so we're not quite sure what we need to be doing. And it's pretty evident that the specialised resources and skills needed are still not available. And the authors reiterate, and I think I'd agree, that we do need better high quality evidence to guide mental health screening in the ED and to look at what the effective interventions for ongoing follow-up care after an ED visit. I don't think many people will dispute that view 
I think it will vary around the world. I think you will have to look at your own services and see what you think. But looking at this paper, looking at the Canadian model, I think will be very interesting to benchmark against that and see where you are. Hopefully you're doing better than how the Canadians are perceiving themselves doing at this moment. Now Mary's also pulled out a paper on the use of pain scores in children and pain assessment is, is difficult, not just in children. I, mean, I just think it's just generally difficult in everybody because it's a subjective system to some extent. But in children, it is particularly difficult. And we know that the accurate assessment of pain due to any acute injury can be really challenging, particularly if the child is distressed and anxious. And yet we know that providing timely and effective analgesia is really key to child and care comfort and satisfaction. So we can't ignore this. We've got to do something about it. So this issue, we've got an interesting paper by Fionn James and colleagues in Wales who set out to assess the inter-rater agreement of the RCHEM composite pain scale. So having to look at see if you get the same result basically between two different people using the same thing at the same time. And the majority of pain assessment tools for children were designed for post-operative or chronic pain and not for the sort of patients that we see with sudden or acute pain due to injury. So the Archem Composite tool combines the numerical rating scale, like the ladders, a modified Wong-Baker faces scale, so that's like the happy faces, sad faces, and a behaviour score, which groups pain into four categories based on severity. To date, the reliability of this scale, the Archem scale, has not really been assessed. So in this study, they've looked at pain severity assessed by the triage nurse, doctor, and child, depending on their age, and using that composite pain scale. And Interestingly, the FACES scale demonstrated greater inter-rater agreement than the behaviour scale, while the ladder demonstrated pretty poor inter-rater agreement, actually, in comparison with the behaviour score. So the conclusion of the authors is that we, the ladder score should probably be omitted. But I think you need to read this paper in some detail. And there's some blogs knocking around on this as well, uh, which you might want to search for, which have a different view on this. But I think the, the fundamental thing is we're still faced with this difficulty of really having a very, very simple or objective method for assessing pain in children, which is also incredibly reliable and has fantastic inter and intra-rater agreement. So it's still a complex area and we need some more work out there. Mary's also identified a couple of papers looking around how we use emergency medicine data around public health interventions. And I think just generally as a concept, that's important because emergency care should be used to inform public health interventions. We're actually a really important part of the public health process. And at recent conferences, I've noticed a real interest in presentations and some of the themes and some of the streams in those conferences to look at the link between public health and emergency medicine. I think think that's very, very good. So we've got a paper looking at the acute and chronic alcohol intoxication. That's clearly a worrying global health issue, causing many health and social problems, certainly where I am. But actually, it is around the world. And you can't get more remote, I think, than places like Reunion Island in the southwest Indian Ocean. And that's no exception. Um, Reunion Island is one of the four French regions where premature mortality due to alcoholism and cirrhosis is the highest. And fetal alcohol syndrome is seven times higher than that of metropolitan France. So Villan and colleagues have looked at undertaking an exploratory analysis based on syndromic surveillance data to describe the emergency department visits for alcoholic intoxication and factors associated with that variation. And alcohol intoxication attendance was the second most common reason for ED attendances after trauma. No great surprise there. And these attendances increase significantly on benefit payday, weekdays and public holidays. And I think that's something which will resonate again around the world. So the authors conclude in this that this kind of syndromic surveillance system for monitoring public health data 
you know, beyond just doing it for infectious diseases, can be used to inform initiatives to reduce morbidity and mortality from alcohol intoxication. Although clearly work needs to be done to demonstrate that that can actually be done. Now, according to the World Health Organization, interpersonal violence accounts for about half a million deaths a year globally. So it's huge. And that figure will come as no surprise to people like us and maybe arguably regarded as fairly conservative by those who care for victims on a daily basis. So addressing violence has traditionally really been a police concern. So it's quite interesting to see a cross-sectional study this month in the journal by Quigg and colleagues in the UK. And that explored the potential of ambulance call-out data to understand patterns of violence to inform prevention activity. So this paper is well worth a read, really. It's, it's, it's likely that other EDs will see similar trends and similar ideas. And what they found is that the majority of call-outs were at night for young males in deprived and urban areas and that these calls increased on weekends and bank holidays, but interestingly not for sporting events. Just over 77% were assault or sexual assault, while about a quarter were stabbed, gunshot and penetrating trauma, even in the UK. And interestingly, there were significant differences in call-out characteristics between the two violence types. So the authors really conclude that ambulance call-out data provides a really rich source of information. And sharing this data could be the key in violence prevention programmes. And that any information that we can get can contribute to prevention programmes and has to be worthy of consideration. And actually, I seem to remember there's been papers in the EMJ going back many years, I think from South Wales, looking at max fax injuries and prevention data linked to where the incidents took place. So there is a trend of doing this in emergency medicine, but I think that clearly these two papers demonstrate that there's more options available to us. So that's it for this month. Um, I hope you have a wonderful summer, or maybe you're having a winter if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. And I look forward to seeing lots and lots of people at the conferences that are coming up around the world. Please read the journal, get in touch via Twitter, get in touch via the blog, get in touch via Facebook, and, you know, enjoy your emergency medicine and have a great time. See you soon.